0: war and peace a podcast by the international crisis group Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. We have returned for a brand new season. I'm Olga Ulker, and I'm speaking to you from Brussels.
1: And I'm Alyssa Jobson, also in Brussels.
0: We are delighted to be embarking on a brand new season of War and Peace, albeit a little bit later than we expected. It's been an incredibly busy summer and early fall in um, the Europe and Eurasia region, broadly defined. Um, it's uh, really almost overwhelming uh, with just how much has happened in the last few months. So we are we are simultaneously horrified by most of it, but also um, fairly excited to bring you a lot of really interesting episodes. So looking forward to having you stay tuned.
1: Um, on a lighter note, you may have noticed that we have a brand new theme tune. It's a riff on Tumblr Laika, a Yiddish folk song from the part of the world that we talk about most here on War and Peace. And it's performed by none other than my multi-talented co-host, Olya. She's also composed and recorded most of the other music that you will hear in this and future episodes. So today we're... Returning to the war in Ukraine. A lot has unfolded since we were last on air. Intense attritional warfare continued for much of the summer. Then in September, the Ukrainian army stunned the world with a surprise counter offensive, which reclaimed large parts of Kharkiv Oblast and some towns in southern Ukraine. In response, Russia has chosen to
0: escalate
1: people in occupied territories forced at gunpoint to vote on what Moscow has termed referendums on joining Russia. President Putin has signed an order for a partial mobilisation which aims to conscript some 300,000 men, ostensibly reservists with military experience, but in fact all sorts of people of all ages and types of experience are getting mobilisation notices. The bottom line is that we have embarked on a new and even more dangerous phase of the war.
0: Uh, to discuss the impact of all of these battlefield uh, developments and particularly focus in on the military aspects of the war in Ukraine and its implications, we are delighted to welcome Dara Massico of the RAND Corporation to the War and Peace podcast. Dara is a senior policy researcher at RAND, and she specializes on defense and security issues in Russia and Eurasia. Particularly, she has written a tremendous amount uh, of really good work on Russian military strategy combat operations, personnel issues, and escalation dynamics. Her recent foreign affairs piece, Russia's Repeat Failures, um, touches on a lot of what has happened in recent weeks, um, and she wrote it before recent weeks. So I uh, commend you to go and give it a read. Uh, we are big fans and uh, really, really thrilled. So thank you for coming on and welcome to War and Peace.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Dara, I want to start off about the situation on the ground, with the caveat that it continues to change. But I want to start with kind of a big question: Why do you think Ukraine was able to make the counteroffensive gains it made in uh, early and mid-September? I mean, for so long we were there was so much speculation of can Ukraine pull off a counteroffensive? Will there be a counteroffensive? Because up until then, the only real progress Ukraine had made, other than kind of really incremental, just a few kilometers at a time, had been when the Russian forces voluntarily withdrew. So what made
2: this possible? The Ukrainians were discussing a counteroffensive in Kherson. Russia was reactive to that, and they started redeploying a lot of their units that were up there in the north, up in Kharkiv, and in the Donbass. And they sent them down to Kherson, exposing themselves, exposing the lines, uh, leaving a set of units that were badly damaged from the early phases of the war, leaving behind proxy forces from luhansk Donetsk, and leaving behind um, Ruskvardia units who are not um, typically uh, considered combat units, although they do have um, armored personnel carriers and, and uh, some equipment like that. So they were pretty vulnerable and exposed up there. And when the Ukrainians uh, started moving into the region, uh, there was some engagement, some some combat, but then el- something else happened. Um, within the course of a, f- a few days or a few hours in some cases, what I suspect happened uh, was panic started to spread among the units up there. And I noted that it was basically a, a collapse of the front where you had people fleeing, abandoning large weapons caches, abandoning dozens, if not over a 100, um, armored vehicles of all types, just uh, really chaotic withdrawal. And I, I, I think a collapse is probably an accurate word for that.
1: So what, what's the state of the Russian army now? And how do you assess its performance against the Ukrainian army going forward, especially, you know, with the influx of Western weapons that, that, that Ukraine is receiving?
2: Yeah, so I, I, so I think the dynamics going on in Kherson are a bit different than, than what was going on up in Kharkiv, where you had this vulnerable force, um, really in a sort of a skeleton manning or cadre kind of a manning situation. Um, in Kherson, the units are, by my understanding, although they are depleted and they are exhausted, they're still some of Russia's most capable units. So down there, you're hearing a slightly different story. Um, The advance uh, from the Ukrainian side is is not very quick. Um, The Russians are dug in, um, and they're exchanging a lot of artillery fire. So neither side, I think, down there um, is having a lot of success, which is why you're not really hearing a lot from either side. I think they're very much engaged. So I guess my answer to your question is that the dynamics are highly variable along the line. Um, I think um, towards the center part um, up near um, you know, Liman, is a, an area of focus, at least as of you know, the, the end of this week, which is the, the 29th, which is when we're recording it. But I think uh, we can say that there's a common characteristic along the front line and that these forces are exhausted. They've all been fighting pretty much nonstop since February with little to no rest. Um, in terms of you know predicting battlefield outcomes, it's it's difficult to to say right now. I, I just wanted to flag that the dynamics in, in Kherson are are not the same as what happened in Kharkiv.
0: I mean, they also we've got the Russians were able to build better defensive positions in Kherson. They've been there for a really long time, and it seems like up in the north they just didn't. They didn't expect the Ukrainians to come back. Or they didn't think of it uh and now the ukrainians have to also be careful as they take uh, as they take back territory to make sure they're not left in the same vulnerable position that they actually do dig in so that the russians can't come back so do you think that moscow has put everything it has forward in ukraine um or do you think they've been holding some capabilities back one of the big mysteries of this fight has been the underperformance for instance of the russian air force and I've heard and debated with folks, you know, what does that mean? Uh, do they really just have these huge capability gaps, or are they nervous
2: about expending everything too soon? That's a great question, and and this is something that I've I've thought a lot about from the opening days of the war up until the present. Um, you know, the missing case of of the Russian air force, I think, was the title of an article that Justin Bronk from Rusi wrote, and it's it's still missing. Um, this should have been an advantage for Russia. They have a large air force with different types of aircraft and and an array of missiles that Ukraine does not have. And yet they have not uh, been a decisive element um, to this war. And I I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, In the beginning... Uh, you know, if you, if you look at Russia's strike pattern, what they were trying to hit, trying to target in the opening days of the war, it, it made logical sense. They were going after air bases and where they believed Ukrainian air defenses were. Um, but at, at the same time, the Ukrainians relocated everything. And a lot of those initial strikes were not very successful. And ever since then, the Russians have been playing catch up. They've never truly been able to achieve air superiority. They are uh, not um, able to do close air support to the ground forces. They're vulnerable to Ukrainian air defenses or um, even man pads, frankly. It's a mystery and not a mystery (laughs) how they got themselves into this situation. What I suspect happened, at least with the the Air Force, and I I share your views that it's something they're holding back. Um, I think two things happen. I think that the Russians learned the wrong lessons from their war in Syria They had a plan to um, increase pilot throughput as quickly as they as they could through Syria. And they often touted, you know, 90 percent of our pilots have combat experience. They, they, you know, they can they can fight. And that is a that is beneficial. But it's almost like they thought combat experience in the desert, in an uncontested airspace where no one was seriously shooting at you would be immediately transferable to a very large country uh, in heavily forested terrain with an ions network it 's fundamentally a different situation you know what i've what i've been looking at in in recent weeks this summer in August and September, uh, particularly after the collapse in Kharkiv um, you know why didn't why didn't Moscow commit its air force in a very significant way to try to stabilize the situation? Um, I think they accelerated their daily sortie rate for a while. Um, We know that because the loss rates went up in terms of Russian aircraft. But again, there has not been a decision to fully commit the Air Force. And uh, they'd rather mobilize than do that. And it's still a mystery to me.
1: So if they are holding back, what are they waiting for?
2: Yeah, I, I thought about that too. You know, what, what is what is the explanation for this decision? I think the, the last count um, from open sources was they've lost somewhere around 55 fixed wing aircraft, somewhere in that range. That is overall, a sounds bad, but it's overall a pretty small percentage of the Air Force. They still have a lot of it left. I don't know if they are um, withholding it deliberately because they need to have something in their back pocket if things escalate and suddenly they're fighting with NATO. Although I, I question now a lot more, uh, what is their capability against NATO if they're struggling to this extent in Ukraine? Um, another possibility is that the aircraft are not able to go up. Um, the Russian aerospace industry has been heavily impacted by sanctions. I don't know the extent to which it's impacting the VKS. That, that's a possibility. I, I don't know the answer. But I have seen some anecdotal reporting uh, from soldiers uh, that have come from release transcript from the Ukrainians where they're saying, where's our close air support? You know, they're, they're querying their commanders and the commanders are telling them they're not, they're not going to risk an aircraft for you. So that to me tells me it's, it's a larger decision and it's a sort of a cultural one, military cultural one. And maybe they just don't
0: have enough aircraft. But, you know, I uh, read somewhere today uh, that uh, one of the reasons that Russia's had such high casualty rates, or Ukrainians tell us have very high casualty rates, is they can't get uh, air in to evacuate wounded. And that's not just planes, right? That's helicopters. And if that's the case, then, yeah, there is something really weird going on.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I have seen some, some um, limited examples of search and rescue, but... Mostly in context of when a um, an aircraft goes down, and they're going in to rescue the pilot because the pilots are rare, I guess, and, and important, and they need to need to get them. But i, I share um, I share that view. I haven't seen um, I haven't seen too many examples of aircraft coming in and getting these guys out. I have, have seen it um, pick them up from the border. They're getting them out somehow, and they will fly aircraft to the Russian border and then fly them into hospitals. But I, I agree. There's a there's a big medevac problem.
0: So I want to go to this mobilization. They clearly have; they seem to have decided to try to throw hundreds of thousands of people at the adversary rather than uh, figure out how to use their planes. And thus far, they seem to have forced um, several hundred thousand uh, Russians to leave the country as a result, as they, as people try to evade and avoid mobilization. Um, what is your sense of their capacity to get? what, 300,000 people more uh, into the fight?
2: So I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic about the Russian mobilization base. Um, I've done some, some research on it and, and kept an eye on it over the years. It's not what I would describe as a top uh, medium <laughs> priority for the Russian ministry of defense. It is consistently the lowest uh, priority for them. Um, so I, I do have some concerns that it is all of a sudden after a decade of neglect going to be able to suddenly spring into action and, and operate. Um, that being said, there, there are some things that it can do and, and some things that I think it will really struggle. So maybe it's better to separate this out. Um, so far what I'm seeing in the first week is that they, they are able to ingest people. They're, there's, they're bringing in a lot of people. And I think there's some gamesmanship going on there where at the local level, the uh, military commissariats or the Vyenkomats are notoriously corrupt in Russia and and in the Soviet, excuse me, in the Soviet period. And, you know, they have a quota. They have to get people through the door, regardless, apparently, whether or not they are eligible or have deferments or are too old. um, They are pushing them through. Up until the next level, which occurs at the district level in Russia, where then they become somebody else's problem to cope with. So, you know, there's, there's these little uh, games being played at local levels. I do see signs though that they're starting to tighten that up. I think they're able to get people in. I have seen, um, they're able to supply them with winter uniforms and boots, um, weapons, but not much beyond that. At this point, And then granted, I, I don't know what I'm not seeing. I'm trying to see as many things as I can to, to get a sense of the health of it. Uh, but it, it looks like they're grabbing them up, they're putting them in barracks, or they're sending them to district training centers, which are temporary. And they're giving them anywhere from a couple weeks to one month of basic training, which is very insufficient for the type of combat that they're going into. So that's the personnel side. I think that they can... I don't know what timeline they're talking about for 300,000. Um, I don't think they can do that all at once. I think it's going to be rolling. Um, I've heard uh, variations on how many people they've gotten so far, varying from tens of thousands up to over 100,000. It, it, things are all over the map, and I, I don't have a satisfactory answer yet for the numbers.
1: Will they? Do you think they'll stop at 300,000, or are they going to try and uh, draft more. Some independent Russian media is suggesting that the target might be up to 1. 1.2 million.
2: I've, yes, I've seen those rumours as well. And, and I guess where I come down on it is the biggest change for Russia is going from no mobilisation to mobilisation. And if they announce another wave later that they've already crossed the Rubicon. I mean, the, the, the penalty has already, you know, for stability purposes has already been crossed. Um, so I I do think that they, they leave the option open for themselves, um, in the future. But I guess my question I'm trying to answer is what are they going to use these people for? And I think if, if they're just going with basic training, here's how to hold a gun, Maybe they're planning on using these people for logistics or for manning checkpoints in the occupied territories or other non-combat auxiliary tasks, in which case having a lot of people would theoretically help you because then you can put your soldiers back on the front line. But in terms of converting this base into like battalions that will fire artillery, that to me seems like such, such an ask for the mobilization base to do. To the point where I think it would take them months. So the goals are not particularly clear yet, but I think the people will help them hold what they have. But then who's going
0: to do the attacking, right? I mean, they don't have, they, where do they come from? Right.
2: I mean, the, this whole plan relies on an assumption that, you know, if Russia annexes the territory and says they're Russian and they threaten nukes and they have people at checkpoints that the Ukrainians and Ukraine's supporters will just, what well, I guess, stop, con- you know, freeze the conflict. And it doesn't seem like either uh, Ukraine or its supporters are signing up to just accept this. So the, the plan has some fatal uh, assumptions in it.
0: What's what's your take, Jura, um, on the arguments that Russia is intentionally targeting uh, ethnic minorities in uh, the mobilization? You know, my My gut instinct is to say it's not they're intentionally targeting ethnic minorities. It's that a lot of ethnic minorities live in poor areas and poor areas have the people who live there just have fewer options. So that's why they've been um, overrepresented on the front lines to date. And that's why they're going to be overrepresented in the mobilization. But I'd be curious if you have a different take on that.
2: Yeah, no, this is a this is a complex a complex answer, and I see it, I, I share your, uh, your assessment that it, it often gets boiled down uh, into uh, maybe an oversimplification that they're deliberately uh, targeting them. I would say there's a few things going on. Um, one, I, I, I don't think um, that we're seeing the full picture I, I'm not really seeing all of the different oblasts in Russia, what mobilization is looking like, you know, what does it look like up in Norilsk or what does it look like over in the Primorsky? Like I, I'm not seeing all the different regions. <clears throat> we're seeing um, select scenes from certain parts. Uh, I would say probably less than half of the oblasts I've, I've even seen at this point. So I, one, we're not seeing the full picture. Um, two, um, a lot of the, really large Russian military bases are in these areas, whether it's in places like Buryatia or whether it's in places like Dagestan or Ingushetia, Um they're, they're dispersed in, in some of those areas. So a lot of those people, um, either at the Vyankamat level or people who have served, that's where they live. Um, and then it's also, as you were saying, based on who's already served and a lot of uh, people from a sort of a, you know, the lower sort of socioeconomic perspective are the ones who often serve in the Russian military, particularly as enlisted. And, you know, in a lot of those cases, it is from the North coxes it is from some of these areas um, out in Siberia. If they're in the system in a disproportionate level, then they're going to be recruited at a disproportionate level. Um, so I just, I haven't seen I haven't seen the Russian mobilization system behaving in enough of an organized way in general that they have an organized plan um, to to do that based on ethnicity. I think it's a lot more chaotic. (laughs) So what about gender? I mean, one of the things that has
0: really struck me about this war is it's so gendered in so many ways, right? From the Ukrainian refugees being mostly women because the Ukrainians won't let uh, most men leave the country to the, uh, well, the Russians now being mostly men because it's mostly men being conscripted. And you've got Ukraine exaggerating how many women are in its armed forces. You know, I've seen this at the MOD statistic that is 22%, which puts the actual number of women in uniform, which is about 50,000, and divides it by the statutory uh, number of people in uniform, which is 250,000, but which is maybe a third of the number of people fighting in total. And then you've got the Russian military, which, according to my math, seems to have... Um, halved the number of women, like both the number and the proportion, because it doesn't seem to have actually grown. So, you know, in 2008, they had nearly 10% of their force, about 9% was women, and now it's something like 4%. But we've seen some women get mobilization notices, at least according to um, some of the reporting I've seen.
2: What's, what's your take on this? Do you think there's a there to this story? Well, you know, I, this is a question that I've had for a long time about the Russian military. They've had, and they've known for the better part of 20 years that they have a significant demographic problem to overcome. They have tried to overcome that by um, enticing more and more people to join military service with better pay and theoretically better living conditions, although you know things are highly variable depending on which unit you're serving at. Um, but to me, they never... What I saw was a decision not to look into in any serious way the possibility of broadening the pool of um, professions that women could serve in inside the Russian military. They are very limited in what they can actually do and prevented in most cases from having any kind of hazardous job, um, any combat role whatsoever. They can serve um, in, uh, you know, cryptology or you know signals, or they can be instructors, uh, medics. But they are not permitted uh, to um, work on ships for the most part. They are not permitted to be pilots. um, Although they're they're trying some pilot programs for pilots. (laughs) That's a lot of saying pilots a lot in one sentence, but um, they're experimenting with it, and they've been experimenting with it for some time, but it's never been serious. So, um, you know, Russian society is pretty conservative, and in terms of gender roles, and the military, especially so it's one of the more conservative aspects of Russia. So I, I just don't see the current generation of leadership, taking a look at that, how to explain uh, Russian women getting mobilization notices. I suspect it's because they have some skill that's in high demand. They're either—I um, I haven't seen the, the ones yet, so I, I'm, I'm speculating here—but I would imagine it would be things related to um, health, um, you know, medic, medical support, um, or trainers, or maybe some IT support. I, I'm not sure what they would use them for, but those are typically about it for women. Um, I'm not as familiar with the Ukrainian side. I, I I agree with you. I haven't really seen a lot of women serving um, in combat roles. I do see some every now and then um, in the units. You know, they're they're with them. Uh, you don't see that um, on the Russian side at all. If there are women inside the occupied parts of Ukraine, they're either intelligence operatives um, we saw that around Chernobyl they were digging through the files up there um, or they're helping administer the occupation governments so it, it's it it is heavily gendered um, on that side and you know to your other question about the makeup of the refugees um, all being exclusively women and, and children uh, that's there's going to be a lot of issues when these people come back together um, in Ukraine. And let's, you know, remain hopeful that the war ends and families are reunited. Um, You know, you have uh, a society where millions of people are displaced internally, millions of people are displaced abroad, uh, where a significant number of the men are in a combat situation and potentially dealing with post-traumatic stress. Um, There's going to be a lot of mental health needs in Ukraine when this is over. Um, And and now too. So it's, um, it's a difficult, difficult situation.
1: To get back to the mobilization for um, a minute. How do you think that's actually going to affect things on the ground militarily? Is Russia aiming to defend the territory that it's taken? Does it want to grab more territory? You touched on this a little bit, but how battle ready Are these reserves? How much training are they going to need? Um, what trainings, what training are they likely to get and what impact will that have? And also thinking about the Ukrainian army, are they prepared for a surge in Russian forces? And what, what impact is this additional 300,000 reservists going to have on, on, on the ability of the Ukrainian army? to hold their own positions and to make further gains?
2: Uh, Such uh, great questions. Um, So in terms of what the the Russian side is receiving, ideally, um, Russian basic takes around three to four months um, to do. If you were conscripted, that's about, you would get 12 weeks or so of basic training. Uh, The mobilized folks are uh, highly unlikely to get anything close to that i the longest span of time that I've seen discussed has been a month. Um, in some anecdotal cases, it's been days. So um, the training is not sufficient for the for the kind of combat situation that they they're going into. Um, I think they're going to teach them basic skills like um, I've seen them do rifle practice, how to clean your gun. Um, I haven't seen any armored equipment training yet. Uh, but I, I don't know if that that's not happening or just we're not seeing it. Um, what we do know about that from units who have been fighting as volunteers over the last couple months, they've been giving them, I, I think I saw some anecdotes that said one or two weeks on the simulators on, for how to drive tanks, and then a couple weeks on the training range. And that's woefully inadequate um, to handle this kind of machinery and and when they were actually sent into Ukraine the machines broke down they don't know how to fix them because they're terribly short on mechanics and technicians um and they don't know how to handle it so when we you start to see over time you know in the beginning of the war Russians by and large were okay at driving like they could drive they could maneuver and then you see this sort of steady degradation over time where Tanks are just driving out of control and hitting telephone poles, and you know, getting stuck in gear and going around in circles. I mean, you you can literally just see the quality falling off. But you know, again, if if their goal is to just blanket the occupied territories with people and have people and checkpoints on every corner, you know, having untrained people in large numbers can help you with that. But you know, in terms of you know the other side of the question: Are they making forces that are going to be able to, you know, reconstitute divisions and somehow take Kharkiv or take Kiev? I I don't see that. I even if they call up reserve officers, if they suddenly manifested out of nowhere, hundreds of mechanics, um, it it's just it just strains the mind to think how this could could happen uh, in the course of a few months uh, in the course of a few years, perhaps they could reconstitute like a large armored force that wouldn't be needed for something like that. Um, in terms of, you know, is Ukraine is Ukraine prepared, I guess it depends on where they put these people. If they are putting them back behind the lines, doing those auxiliary tasks, I think it would be pretty hard for Ukraine to get to all of them. There, there is a, a line of contact, and Ukraine is able to shoot over it with HIMARS and, and weapons like that. But I, I don't know the, how they would go in. They would have to punch through the front to to clear those people back. Um, now, if they put them all on the front line into depleted, broken units, with, I mean, just the the mental wear and tear on people who've been fighting this long and, and doing all the other crimes and atrocities that just ambient wherever they, they are, it would appear. Um, I, I don't know how if that's going to actually help their situation. I think it actually introduces a lot more logistical strain and chaos, um, into an already um, chaotic situation where the Ukrainians can target them. So I, I, I know that's not a satisfactory answer, but it's, a. Uh, still early days in terms of of where they put these people and what they're going to have them do that's going to determine the outcome of this so prediction is hard especially
0: in this war which is uh, yes. really just chock full of surprises but we're almost out of time so i feel contractually obligated to ask you what you think i don't know what, what are what are three not implausible scenarios for what happens next
2: Am I allowed to use the Mike Kaufman uh, defense of it's contingent? <laughs>
0: everything <laughs> is contingent. We, well, we it's everything contingent, right? So, yeah, everything's contingent, but we try
2: to bound the possible. Yes. Um, well, I I have some thoughts, but then I, I want to ask you, uh, because you you are an expert on, on Russian escalation theory and, and how things might happen. Um, my thought is that Russia still believes that they have an operational play here and that mobilization will allow them um, to get what they want um, out of this situation otherwise they wouldn't have taken the risk and it, it is a risk it, it is a risk what they are doing to domestic stability um, I think that they believe that if they mobilize and send in people that they can stabilize their holdings in these four oblasts for now and they can kick the can down the road a few years until they can regenerate force, and either you know bolster their their presence where they are, or in some fantastical world, try to take another bite um, at it at their original ambitions. Um, so there's there's one outcome where they just try to blanket the occupied territories with people to hold it. Again, it's a risk. Um, I think there's also an outcome where um, you the, and this would be an outcome that I. I I'm worried where it takes us is that um, these forces are so poorly prepared, they put them into Ukraine and they, uh, they f- retreat, they flee, defect, the lines collapse in Kherson and it's this cascading collapse. Then what does Russia do? They have very few mechanisms left at that point to try to freeze this in place. And I worry about what that means for, for escalation. But I, I wanted to ask you, um, where we are now is so uncharted. Um, where, How does Russia signal if it's going to escalate and what, what is it likely to do?
0: So th- that's a great question, because how, how do you single, signal that you're going to escalate when you've been threatening escalation? Um, so when you actually look at what um, Russia has been doing throughout this war, it suggests a real fear of having a war with NATO. They don't want that. They have not struck militarily targets in NATO countries. Uh, though if they blew up the pipeline, uh, that's, uh, that's striking a different kind of target. But again, that's, you know, plausible deniability. I feel that's different from using a missile to strike a training site in Poland, right? Which would draw NATO into the war. And they know that they don't want to do that. So they've been trying to avoid this. I think escalation risks go way up if they think they're going down, right? Putin has said that, you know, what good is a world without Russia? And I think Putin sees, you know, a real risk of Russian collapse. If he fails here, Uh, it would be nice if somebody could reassure him otherwise. But uh, so far, he does not seem to be thus reassured. So I think there you have kind of an all bets are off, we'll try anything And I start worrying about things, um, I mean, super low probability, but I worry about it like a false flag attack by Russia on itself to justify a response. Um, I do worry about, uh, sudden attacks, but it's really hard for me to tell the military story of what you would strike with what to what purpose. And maybe I'm just not creative enough and maybe it doesn't matter, but that kind of freezes me a lot. Um. But I think it's, you know, it's a very low but non-zero probability that they will escalate to some sort of nuclear use. And then how will they, you know, will they signal that in advance? How will they signal it? Well, you know, if we see the false flag attack on Russia, that's a really clear sign. Um If we see very explicit threats, I would think that's a really clear sign too. Though I have to say, I've been trying to parse kind of when Russia threatens and when Russia acts, and these two things seem to be bifurcated, right? The, the Russians act without explicitly threatening a good bit, and they threaten without acting a good bit. So trying to tell a story where they threaten and then they act on the military side is a tough one, right? Georgia, they did not threaten, though it, the war was expected for a really long time. Ukraine in 2014, they denied it. Uh, Ukraine this time around... They denied it. Right. What what buildup? Um, so. Yeah, it's it's really hard for me to judge. Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of left looking for the intelligence, uh, you know, are, are are nuclear weapons moving uh, from central storage to where their launchers live? Uh, that would be a super good signal. That's
2: kind of all I've got. I don't know if you have other thoughts. I was hoping that you would reassure me, oh yeah, but I don't, I don't feel reassured um, uh, where this is this is all going. I, um, yeah, I, I thought maybe there were other ways that they could signal also, you know before they they get to that point, but um, you know things like expanding cyber attacks perhaps, or you know Shoigu has threatened, you know NATO ISR in his recent speech announcing mobilization to me, I, I took that as some sort of dig at the satellites and the space constellations of NATO members. So I, I'm, I, I do uh, share some concerns that we're uh, moving into uncharted waters in this space. And on that really depressing note, I think we have to stop for time. I really wish we
0: could keep doing this because it's such a rich conversation. But for now, we have to stop. So thank you so much, Dara, for joining us on in Peace.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, to read more of Dara's analysis on Russia and its military capabilities and ambitions, you should visit Ram's website uh, and you should visit Foreign Affairs for her piece, uh, Russia's Repeat Failures on uh, Prospects for Annexation and What Comes Next and uh, What's Wrong with Russia's Strategies. And you should also follow Dara on Twitter. She's at M-A-S-S-D-A-R-A.
1: You can also find us on Twitter. Olya is at Olya Olika. And I'm at Alyssa Jobson. Many of the topics discussed in today's episode are also covered in Crisis Group's recent statement entitled Staying the Course in Ukraine. You can check this out on crisisgroup.org and follow Crisis Group on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram on at Crisis Group.
0: And I'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vigorski, and our coordinator, Heiko Schwab, uh, for getting this all put together and recorded and mixed and uh, adding the music and all of that. Um, But the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. Uh, We are really, really pleased to be back for a new season. We have great episodes lined up. And if you have thoughts or suggestions on what we should do next, please go ahead and email them to us, uh, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts.
1: But for now, though, it's goodbye from me until we're back again in two weeks time.
0: And goodbye from me as well uh, until next time.